In today's episode of Redefining HR, I'll be sitting down with the Chief People Officer for Just Eat, Mira Magacha. Mira and I are going to discuss her career spanning in-house corporate consulting roles, as well as what it's like to move into the Chief People Officer role from within. What advantages and challenges does that internal move present when you are promoted into the top job? So we'll be right back with that discussion after a brief word from our sponsor. Redefining HR, one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. Reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am very excited to be sitting down today with Mira Magacha. Mira is the Chief People Officer at Just Eat, and she is an incredibly experienced and savvy operator on the people side based out of London. So I'm looking forward to learning more about the London people market and ecosystem, her role at Just Eat, and uh, kind of how all of the events of 2020 are impacting her world across the pond. So Mira, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you start off with just a brief introduction for the listeners? Hi, thanks, Lars. Um, so I am Mira. I am Chief People Officer at Just Eat. Um, for those that don't know Just Eat, it's a global hybrid marketplace for online food delivery. It was founded back in 2001 um, and it's grown from a crew of about 15 people um, in Denmark to about 3,600. Um, earlier this year, so earlier in 2020, we are and have merged with Takeaway.com, a Dutch-based business. Um, and we are where we are right now. Yeah. And so I want to spend some time in where we are right now, but I want to actually rewind the clock uh, back to the beginning. So I think, you know, you're you're in an interesting position right now where I think if you look at the profile of chief people officers, uh, you know, some are people who have spent their careers within the space uh, and, and obviously working across a variety of different roles and disciplines. Uh, others are people that maybe have moved in and out of that function uh, in different capacities. And, you know, you are somebody who spent the majority of your career in HR. And so what initially drew you to the field? I'm always curious of like how people got their starts in HR operations? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm probably one of those really weird and strange people that you don't come across in the field of HR um, in the sense that when I was 17, I think, and I was going through the career fair booklet, and back then it was a booklet, I'm afraid. It wasn't the internet. <laughs> um, I, was, I remember those days. I remember those booklets. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was drawn to the field of HR. So I always knew I wanted to work in business. I always wanted to work around a people-led or people-related function. And so the only thing that kind of appealed to me was either psychology or people. And I kind of went through a phase of going, well, I could always go into psychology post-HR, but I chose to study a straight HR degree um, and then decided to go and work in HR. So yeah, I'm one of those crazy ones that 
joined the field, um, hasn't done any lateral moves or anything like that. I just chose it and have stuck to it. And so I'm curious to get your perspective. I mean, how, in your eyes, how do you think the, the field has evolved you know, over that time? What's, what's significantly different today than perhaps when you got your start outside of maybe digital uh, recruitment marketing materials? Like genuinely, when I joined the field of HR and I, uh, I started at the BBC, um, we, I didn't know anything about recruitment. So I'm also one of those alternative people that didn't start their career in talent acquisition or recruitment. I actually started as a generalist HR advisor, and I've never gone into talent acquisition. Um, funnily enough, about six years in, I almost had to stop and pause and go, oh my God, have I just chosen the wrong field? Because when I started out, I did HR advising, I did generalist HR, and I supported a client group across the various different industries I worked in. But it was all the same. It was the same cyclical cycle. It was the same stuff. It was the same conversations with managers about absence management, um, performance management. And I was just like, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my days? Am I just going to be supporting managers through the same cycles, the same conversations, um, regardless of the industry, regardless of the company? You have the same conversation. So I had a little moment and went, oh, my God, I need to do something different. Um, and that's when I moved into a project role um, working internally. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the work we were doing. Um, it was very much a system implementation back then, um, which was slow. Um, so not the digital SaaS solutions we can implement today, but it it was still really fun. It was fun understanding what the business requirements were, what the business needed, how you interact with people, what the impacts of putting in a system process, the governance structures, reward philosophies, performance management cycles. And so I started getting a real flavor of people processes and the impacts they have on people um, and how a process that's ineffective or inefficient can have a real detrimental impact on the experience that people go through within their employment history or life cycle and so I started loving that piece of work and I worked with a partner organization Capgemini which I then went and joined um, and spent six to eight years working at I can't remember roughly exactly sorry I can't remember exactly how many years but I then joined Capgemini and worked in the people space as a consultant for the next six to eight years and so my experience although has varied, has always, always, always been within the people space, be it internally facing or um, externally client facing. Yeah. And let's talk about that shift to Capgemini a, a bit more. So, you know, obviously you are, you're in an in-house operator role in a corporate environment. Uh, then you, you get into a project-based role that then takes you over to Capgemini, still focused on people projects, but, you know, under the umbrella of consulting. What was that experience like for you? Like, how did that role at Capgemini, you know, being kind of a, a people consultant specialist, shape how you view the field? It was terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> I literally woke up one day and was a in a line HR role, which I was good at. People kind of respected the work I did. They understood what I did to literally the very next week going into work and questioning everything I did. And it was the bare basics. I, I remember this like it was yesterday. I was on a client site and um, 
I developed competencies in in my previous job and kind of was like, okay, this isn't going to be that difficult. And I was asked to develop electrical engineers competencies. Mm. So anyone out there who's kind of electrical engineer will understand what their competencies are. I've never worked in that field. Um, and I'm going, I know what competencies are. I know how they operate. I know how you work them. I have no idea about what an electrical engineer needs and how you devise from a junior electrical engineer to a senior electrical engineer or what the career pathways look like. And so I'm literally sitting there going, I don't even know where to start. So you start with Google searches, you start with people across the business, and this is week one, so it's not like I have a connected view of people or understand their backgrounds or know where they've come from or or any of that stuff. So I'm literally going... I have made the biggest mistake of my life. Um, still relatively in my mid-20s at this point going, this is the biggest mistake of my life. I've just left a perfectly good line HR role where I understood how to build competencies to something I just don't know anything about. What the hell have I just done? Um, but you kind of work through it. You have people around you, you have some mentors and you kind of have the conversation and go, Honestly, I don't know what I'm doing. I I genuinely have no idea how to move forward from this. And as every consultant probably goes through, you learn how to become a consultant rather than become a line HR generalist. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that day or that week as if it was yesterday. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I think when you're in environments like that, where you're getting tasked with, you know, uh, deliverables and projects that you've never done and you pretty much just have to figure it out. Like to me that that's such a, uh, it's a common trait. I think you find in a lot of, uh, you know, chief people officers, frankly, because I think that the role is so dynamic and there are certain things that you deal with that you've seen and done before. Um, you know, and you have an idea of how to respond to that. There's other things like, Oh, I don't know. 2020 that uh, put a lot of things on your plate that nobody has seen before. And you've got to figure that out. It is. It's absolutely amazing. And and one of the things that I reflect back on when I think about my consulting days is it's actually built me up to be the person I am today. And it's partly because of who I am as an individual, but also you learn certain skills that you just don't learn, or I don't think you learn anywhere else. So this whole, the consulting skills workshops that run for a week long, um, how to go into a client. And I did, for the first year and a half, I did nothing but three-week projects. So literally, I've got a new job every three weeks is how it feels because you don't know anyone again and you're working with a different project team. And so you start building up some confidence. You start building up some resilience. You start trusting your instinct. And I don't think you learn that anywhere else so again, I've been at Just Eat for five years. I remember being new, but I don't remember it as if it was the consulting days of it was new every three weeks. And, and so it, it's just a skill, a level of resilience, the ability to trust yourself, trust your instincts, build up a good rapport and be able to influence at such an ease and, and so quickly. They're the things that I think everybody should kind of have to go through. But at the same time, I like the way I did it. So I like the way that I went into industry, did some years in industry, then went and did some consulting, then came out of consulting and have gone back into industry because I think it just sets you up for real success. 
Um, and so if anyone's thinking about it, I'd absolutely do it the way I did it. Um, I do know graduates who joined straight out of university and went straight into consulting and then they've gone into industry and they love it because again it set them up for success in terms of some of the core skills that you need in any business. Right. Well, I think that you know the broad exposure you get and the the variance of projects and deliverables in consulting uh, certainly is valuable to cross over to the the corporate in-house side. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about your role at Justine. So you gave uh, an overview, obviously, uh, of the company in your introduction. You know, one of the things that I I am found interesting is uh, you know you you moved into that chief people officer role from within. I think you'd you'd had you know a series of roles of increasing responsibility before you then got to the CPO seat. And you know, one thing I'm always curious about when when you people when people move into that top job internally uh, and obviously you had you know relationships in place you had a good understanding of the problem set that the organization was facing and where some of those opportunities are um, you know but and but because you're already kind of part of that entity from a, a people team structure and aren't necessarily kind of an outsider coming in and driving change did that make your job easier or more difficult well um I I think it was an interesting time, to be honest. And I'll answer the question as to whether or not it was easier or harder um, in a second. But in, in the five years that I've been at Just Eat, we have been through a lot of change. Um, so not only have we changed internally in terms of how we're organized and what we do and how we do our processes and our people processes integrated with the business, but as an industry, we've also changed. And when I couple all of the things that were happening across the business and the commercial landscape alongside all of the people challenges and then what we've done in the last 12 months of going through a merger, it's just been a super interesting time. And so I can't decouple, I suppose, whether or not going from an internal role or coming externally and then going through all of this change would have been more appropriate for the organization or less appropriate for me I think or for the organization I think it was helpful that I had the context of where we've come from in my chief people officer role um, rather than if they had hired externally and that's just because of everything that's then happened since in the last two years of going through a merger going through the change going through um, an interim chief exec what does that look like, et cetera, and a chief exec in, the, in that process stepping down. So I've seen a lot in a two-year process from how do we put reward structures in place, um, how does the REM policies, how do our share structures stay, all of that stuff that I wouldn't have otherwise had exposure to um, and probably was the bit that I was missing in a real chief, in, a, in going into the chief people officer role. Um, it's just been a fascinating time. So in lots of ways, it was from my point of view, much harder because it was stepping up into a new role. It was stepping up into a new business problem, I suppose. Um, but at the same time, it was easier because I had the context and the background of where we were coming from. Got it. Well, I guess uh, just to follow up on that, you know, for listeners, there's probably a lot of listeners out there who are, you know, maybe themselves in a number two role, uh, aspiring to be a CPO and maybe looking to, to pursue that internally. Um, do you have any advice, any, anything that uh, you think would help them 
uh, increase their chances as they pursue that role internally? Trust yourself. And I, and I say this to probably most people that I speak to about any kind of career development, not just those in the HR field. It's about trust yourself, trust your instinct. Because um, even if you are in a number two role, you've proved yourself or proven yourself um, and you've developed skills, you've got the relationships within the business um, to be able to be the number one role. And you're probably picking up and absorbing and morphing into that number one role without actually you knowing it. And so trust it, trust, trust the process, as, as lots of people would say, because it does all come to come in to play at the right time. And just because you won't have exposure of a particular aspect. So for me personally, um, having done the line HR role in my early career and then moving into consulting, the area that I didn't really have any massive exposure to was the governance of a people function. So be that the REM code, be that what the governance of a people function needs to do, the REMCO side of it. I didn't have any of that. But trust that if you are put into that position, you will have people around you that can help you, but also get yourself a coach. Go speak to people who are in similar situations or have been part of that situation previously. Trust that you will find the solution to help you along your way. So let's get into 2020 because this year has uh, been a lot, you know, probably the understatement of all understatements. Um, you know, the, your role like yours, being a chief people officer is difficult and lonely and isolating in the best of times. And 2020 uh, has certainly not been the best of times for any measure. Um, as a CPO who, you know, is looking after the business, looking after supporting the ex-team peers, uh, supporting your own team and your employees and yourself, how do you manage that without burning out? And I guess the question is coming from, I know a lot of CPOs are really having a hard time with burnout right now, just because of the sustained demands of the business and all of those different constituents I mentioned. So how, how do you, you know, or I shouldn't even say, how do you, you know, do you uh, manage to kind of you know, protect yourself from burnout? Do you have any approaches that maybe uh, help you create some susp uh, some space that allow you to like not just get crushed by the weight of all of the things? I think the biggest thing that I think I've learned over the years is know yourself, know your strengths and know where and 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 know where the signs are. And and I think that really helps me. So during this period of 2020, we obviously didn't know what the impact was going to be across the business. And we started seeing impact in some of our European countries before our major markets. And so we started planning as early as possible in terms of what are some of the impacts, what will we do, what are some of our scenarios, etc. But the other thing I did really early on was bring my team, so the people team, on board to help with that so I didn't take the burden on myself because you just can't do that you just can't do everything yourself so you need to have the right team around you so from a people team point of view we did lots of scenario planning up front so that we were ready in case anything happened 
we we as Just Eat have been in a really fortunate position and our H1 results would have shown that, that as a result of the pandemic and not being able to go out, people have been ordering food in. So our delivery and our restaurants um, and, and the support and the mechanisms that we've put in place have meant that people have been able to get takeouts um, for food delivery. So as a business, we've been in a fortunate position compared to many others. So we haven't had to furlough any staff and we've made some conscious decisions that we wouldn't do that. So where we had, for example, receptionists that weren't letting people into the office and weren't managing the everyday, we took some real conscious decisions that we would um, get them other work and they would get involved in other parts of the business, etc. So we've been quite fortunate in that sense. But in terms of real busy times and busy periods, we all go through that. But knowing ourselves, knowing when those signs are there, knowing that I'm not sleeping or I'm not spending enough time at the gym or I'm not doing my yoga, they're all real good signs for me to know that something's not quite right. And it's really important that I pay attention to when I stop cooking. Um, I know my, my personal telltale sign is when I don't want to go to the supermarket and when I don't want to cook, because that tells me I'm at the point of real tiredness and I need to do something about it because I enjoy cooking. And that's my, that's when I switch off. That's when I actually let the world around me just ignore it. And I either follow a recipe or I'm designing my own recipes and, and everybody will have their own telltale sign. And for some people it's going to the gym four times a week. Sometimes it's not reading or reading to your children at nighttime or not getting home in time for bedtime or bath time. Everybody will have their own telltale signs. It's just knowing what that is and then putting in mechanisms to go, okay, I've now noticed it. I'm not going to tell myself off about it and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take some proactive action to change what it is that's making me not do what it is. And, and so I, I would just take note of it. And initially, like years ago, I used to get really upset about it and go, oh my God, I'm not able to do this. And that would send me into a spiral downwards. Whereas now I notice it and I start doing and putting actions in place to stop myself from doing it. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think being able to identify those signs and act uh, when you notice them is huge um, because I think, again, it's like, especially in a role like yours, uh, there's just, you know, even in the best of times, there's just a tremendous amount of responsibility and weight that comes with that role. And if you're not able to prioritize your own wellness, uh, you know, granted, like none of us are operating at optimal wellness right now. Like that's, that's a given. And I think you can get a, a pass for that, but, uh, not, you know, not looking for those signs and trying to address them before it gets to a complete stage where you're just absolutely fried because you're, you know, then you're not able to support any of those constituents, least of which is yourself. So yeah, that's a, I like that perspective. And, and in all honesty, I, I can't be a hypocrite. So I can't tell the business, and we do a lot of work around mindfulness and well-being and mental health, etc. I can't sit there or stand there or remotely on video conference talk about those things if I don't put a practice into place for myself. So I almost feel like I have to practice what I preach. Otherwise, I have no command um, on, our, on, on, on asking our people to do the same thing. 
and and that just feels like absolutely the wrong thing to be doing from a people point of view. Yeah, that that ability to role model the behavior, I think, is a really important point as well. Because again, people are looking to you for guidance, and you're as a leader, as executive on the team, especially the executive running the people function, you're setting the tone, and so. If you preach wellness and they see you like working yourself to the bone every day and not taking days off, not taking vacation, you know, all of that, like it's not going to be real to them and they're not going to, they're not going to follow that lead. So, um, you talk a little bit about, uh, this environment where people are, you know, obviously we're working from home we're everywhere. I think that they're, I'm curious to get your perspective from a culture standpoint, like, you know, we're, we're accustomed for Companies that had people coming into an office were accustomed to having all of those office rituals. And I think that there was, was this long-held belief of uh, a separation between work and life. And now we're at a point in time where for the workers that have the, you know, the privilege of being able to work from home, they're working from home with their, you're, you're, you know, you're on Zoom every day seeing inside people, your colleagues' homes, seeing their kids, seeing their pets seeing their, you know, their home decor. I mean, uh, everything. Like, what do you think this does t- from a cultural standpoint within organizations where I think the separation and walls between personal and work life are just completely torn down? I think it's awesome. So again, if I talk about my consulting world, and, and again, this is probably my interpretation and I may have misinterpreted it, but when I joined the consulting world, I, I was taught and I learned about the consulting guard. And I may have taken it one step too far in terms of how you appear when you come into the office, but coming into a client office where it's not your home office, it's not where you work and you're going into a client, a client is paying probably a substantial amount of money for your services as an individual. I interpreted the consulting guard as leave your problems at the door. Yeah. When you come to the office, you are this consultant, you are this profession, profession, you are the face of the consulting world that you work for. And so for me, there was this big array and, and probably feedback I've received all of my career, which is people don't get to know me on a personal level during the work office because that's just stood with me ever since, which is I come into work, I am the professional mirror, I have my makeup done, I um, put my heels on. So I walk into the office with flip flops, I come into the office and change into my heels, I've got, I've got a work wardrobe, I've got a home wardrobe, I've got a sports wardrobe, those things don't kind of mix together. And all of those kind of rituals, as you say, were the things that I thought was what you needed to do. I remember the very first week of lockdown, and going, I'm going to be working from home. Am I really going to sit there on a on the Monday morning and put my face on? Am I really going to sit there and put my makeup on? And all of these people that I'm going to be on a Zoom call for with, never seen me without makeup on. And I was just like, it's really good for your skin not to wear makeup. I'm not going out. I'm not leaving the house. It's going to just be really weird getting dressed and putting your face on. And And that was my first conversation with myself saying, actually, I'm working from home. Unless I feel like it and I want to, I'm not going to put some makeup on. And so people started seeing the raw me on calls. And it just slowly led to, actually, I'm in my gym gear. I don't even remember the last time I got in my bar cleaning. <laughs> right. Or wore one of my suit jackets. And again, 
it was something very similar when I first joined Just Eat. I, I joined Just Eat from the consulting world. So my entire work wardrobe was dresses and suit jackets because that's what we wore. And so I used to get feedback of going, where's the jeans? Where's the casual jackets? It's like, yeah, I'll do it sometimes. And everyone kind of thought it was really strange when Mira walked into the office with a pair of jeans on. And so it was one of those things that I think has been fascinating because for me personally, I've kind of gone, I wear my gym gear on Zoom calls. It doesn't matter what I'm in. I'm still doing my work, et cetera. I don't wear my makeup. And so in other people's lives, it's meant that they've got children in the background. They've got cats crawling all over their laptops, all over their work. And it's just meant that people can get to know each other on a different level. And it's breaking down the boundaries. And I think that is awesome. I genuinely think that the the fact that you are let into my home, the artwork that you see behind me, all of those things, just give a bit more of who you are, share a bit more about your personality. It starts creating personal connections, personal stories, not just you are my boss, you are my colleague. It's actually starting to create connections that you would not necessarily connect or create in an office environment. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's great. And I, I hope, you know, frankly, that's something that's here to stay as we kind of navigate through the pandemic and everything that's happening. I think that this this level of, of openness and allowance uh, for people to be themselves, uh, right, and just be real and authentic. I think we all do our best work when we have that level of comfort with each other uh, and then and ultimately with ourselves, just to be able to show up as we are. I think that, that that's that's a uh, that certainly is a change for the good, a lasting change for the good, if we can retain that uh, as we move through this. How many organizations talk about bringing your whole self to work and your being? <laughs> Actually, I think this is the start of what we could genuinely talk about being our authentic selves and bringing the whole you to work. And that doesn't mean I need to come into the office and I need to talk about all the problems I've had um, with my partner, for example, or the cat or the dog or the teacher or the schoolwork or whatever's going on in my life. It doesn't mean that I have to share everything, but it's actually just people knowing what's going on, people knowing your personal situation, knowing the artwork that you like, knowing what you're doing at the weekend, seeing the flowers in the background, whatever it is, the fact that you love plants, whatever, um, skateboards, it's just awesome. It just creates a different dynamic and a different way of connecting with your colleagues that you wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And uh, last question I want to have for you is you've, uh, I know you've got a, a range of kind of interests and projects you pursue outside of your uh, role as well. You know, one of them is a, a company that you have been getting involved with called Unibees. And I'd love to just learn a little bit more about what drew you to that, what they do, and I know you're excited about the potential impact on the university space. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so Unibees is a new passion of mine, um, and it's a business that kicked off um, in about October. So one of the founders came and had a conversation with me in October and said, hey, we're thinking about doing this. And I was like, what's this? And they talked about university students and providing them with real life work and I I just got really excited about the opportunity of what would that really look like how would you really make that work and from from an employer point of view I got excited about it on on the level of 
hey, we bring in graduates, they cost a lot of money to bring into the business, to hire them, go through the careers fairs, do the whole selection and appointment process, and then bring them through the um, graduate program. And so I started thinking about, okay, so if we could use graduates, um, what would it look like? And how could we use them on tasks, on a task basis? And wouldn't it be awesome for the graduate or the student who's currently studying to get a fair wage, get the opportunity to do real life work for a real organisation in the area that they're studying in? And the only problem that I could see at the time was this whole philosophy of Unibees was it was remote. So the student would work from wherever their student location was. And that was the only sticking point. And then, of course, 2020 has happened and we all went remote. And so the concept is that you put out a task as an employer for students to come and say, I want that work. Um, the student comes and does the work and they're doing it completely remotely anywhere in the world. So this whole idea of borderless talent, this whole idea of being able to bring a diverse sector of student populations and being able to target the universities based on what they actually teach and what they're actually studying. So I could go anywhere in the country to get a student because that's where they do the best social media degree. And I'm not restricted by just going to the universities near the locations in which my offices or our offices are based. And so this whole proposition just got really exciting. And the more I talked about it, the more I thought about it, it actually, for me, answered so many different questions and responses to the world of the diversity of students, the issues we have with bringing in graduates and graduate intake, the cost of gradu graduates, and then also helping and supporting graduates really understand their field of study and what it would look like when they came into the workplace. All of those things, for me, were awesome as to why I got involved with Unibees. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. And I think obviously the the timing uh, as it relates to the pandemic and borderless talent and the shift to distributed work, uh, that's massive. So yeah, if people want to find more about that. So is that is that live now? And so obviously we've got a lot of uh, HR listeners for the podcast who are helping the organizations identify early career talent. Uh, how, do, how do people learn more? So reach out to me. Um, and I can get you in touch with the team who are working on it. Um, but yeah, we we haven't launched yet. So the plan is that we will launch in twenty um, in twenty twenty. So November twenty twenty is our our planned launch date, and it's super super exciting. And uh, the the bit that excites me the most is the socio economic background, the equal opportunities, the ability to get students um, a fair wage for the work that they do. And I think I just think when I was a student, for example, the only option I had was to go and work in a restaurant um, and, and serve food or in the local pub or the student unions, etc. And this, I just think, meets a need that we don't have currently. So it's really, really exciting. But yeah, reach out to me if you've got any questions. Mira, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, definitely look forward to more conversations down the road. Awesome. Thank you so much for yours, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. 
And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.